We are in week four of our preaching series, working our way through themes of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. If you're newer to our church, uh, I'm Pastor Paul, and uh, welcome to First City Church. To begin this series, we spent the first couple of weeks dispelling the belief that wisdom is only about intellectual knowledge. We talked about how it is more a matter of the heart than a matter of the head. Last week, we turned a corner, acknowledging while that is very much true, wisdom is also a matter of knowledge and skill. And so we began discussing applying wisdom to specific situations. In the case of last week, we talked about applying wisdom to our communication or our speech. This week, we're going to learn how Proverbs applies wisdom to planning, to how we look to the future, lay out a vision of what we want the future to look like, and determine steps we need to take to get there. This is the skillful act of planning. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I run. Now, I do not say I enjoy running because I don't. I enjoy eating out. I enjoy watching football. Uh, I enjoy reading. I do not enjoy running. But to stay physically fit, I run two or three miles in the mornings a few days a week. And so for the last couple years, as part of that regimen, I've participated in the Papillion Half Marathon. But due to date conflicts, I couldn't make that happen this year. And so I looked around the region and decided to sign up for a half marathon taking place in October in Denver. That became a goal in the future that I was planning for. I wanted to run all 13 miles of the half marathon in Denver, not walk. So to accomplish that goal, I began thinking through, well, if I'm running three miles a morning now, and I want to run 13 miles in October, and 13 miles at a significantly higher altitude, I need to begin ramping up my running routine, doing longer runs on the weekends. I need to to begin incorporating something called intervals into my running routine, running faster so you intentionally have a hard time breathing, because I know I'm going to have a hard time breathing in Denver. I may run a few times like I did yesterday with First City Church's J.T. Peebles, a guy who runs marathons so he can give me advice on nutrition and running form. If I want to run, not walk this half marathon in Denver, I need to have a plan. Proverbs 21.5 begins, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. There is blessing for the diligent in planning. As such, the book of Proverbs has much to say about the process of planning and the principles of planning. It teaches us that planning matters and how we plan matters. So we're going to examine Proverbs to learn about applying wisdom to planning. And to do so, we will identify three characteristics of wise planning. Look to the future, leave evil plans, and listen to counsel. So let's begin with look to the future. 
The book of Proverbs provides numerous examples of how the wise individual looks to the future as he considers plans. For example, in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her food in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant knows what season it's in, it knows what season is coming up, and it knows what it needs to do to thrive and survive in that upcoming season. Maybe there will be enough food to survive in the winter, but there is a realistic possibility there will not be. So the ant takes steps to gather food during harvest to provide for its needs in the winter. The wise man, like the ant, looks to the future and recognizes realistic dangers and plans accordingly. Another example of looking to the future is the righteous bride described in Proverbs 31. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. The righteous woman, she looks to the future knowing that she has to get up super early in the morning to ensure food is ready for her household. She looks to the future because she effectively delegates tasks to others, thinking about everything that needs to be done and who's going to do it best. She looks to the future as she considers a field and buys it. She understands the resources she possesses. She is willing to pay the cost of the time and energy it will take to make that field turn a profit. She understands if she says yes to a particular field, she is saying no to many others. Many individuals do not look to the future as they make decisions and make plans. They do not consider realistic scenarios that may lie ahead. And they do not consider that when they say yes to a particular decision, they are saying no to something else. So when I say yes to running a half marathon in Denver, I am saying yes to spending more time running and saying no to spending more time reading. When I say yes to the half marathon in Denver, I'm saying yes to spending money on that half marathon and the the cost of the trip to Denver And I'm saying no to spending that money on attending a Nebraska football game. When you make particular decisions in how you spend your time or how you spend your money, do you consider what you're saying no to? Giving time to social media, scrolling through your Facebook feed, giving time to watch your Netflix programs to engage your me time, Do you know what you're saying no to? Spending time reading and memorizing and meditating on scripture? Spending time building face-to-face relationship with your friend or your husband or your wife? Spending time in prayer, begging God to save friends or family members or coworkers who do not know Jesus? The wise person looks to the future 
and knows what he or she is saying no to. Many of us, we struggle to look to the future as we make decisions and make plans. Proverbs teaches a number of reasons that is true, and we certainly do not have time to get into all of those reasons, but we'll engage a few. The contrast in Proverbs 21.5 of the diligent who make plans that lead to abundance is the one who is hasty, leading to poverty. Maybe, maybe there are people who react in situations doing what others think they want them to do, or maybe they're not self-controlled to think through the consequences of their decisions. That's one reason people don't look to the future. In the passage about the ant gathering food for the winter, the contrast is the sluggard. The one who is lazy doesn't look to the future to make plans. The sluggard simply has personal pleasure in mind. If you struggle to look to the future to make plans because you are lazy and irresponsible, you only live in the moment, you need to realize there's a self-centeredness in your life you need to probably repent of. The slugger does not think through how his or her decisions could hurt others in the future as he or she seeks personal pleasure. The sluggard does not think about how his or her staying up late or sleeping in impacts others. The sluggard doesn't realize that if he or she is not responsible to grow spiritually today, if that is something they're lazy about, that will impact others tomorrow. The sluggard doesn't care. And so if you struggle to look to the future because you are lazy and irresponsible, you need to repent. Others of us struggle to look to the future as we make decisions and make plans because we have a misunderstanding of how we functionally answer the question, who controls the future, God or man? On one side, there are individuals who uphold, because they've read the Bible, that God is in control. But because God is in control, they dismiss the need to plan for the future. And so they they love words like organic and spontaneous or free. There's a little bit of a hipster mentality that plays out. To justify such a position, they use Bible verses like Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Planning must be leaning on your own understanding. Not planning, well, that's, that's trusting the Lord. So one of their favorite creeds is, let go and let God. Don't worry about the future. God, God will take care of it. Trust in his character and you'll be fine. Christians who embrace this type of disposition that dismiss man's role in impacting the future have actually embraced something more like fatalism. The fatalist essentially says, what will be, will be. People's decisions and plans have no impact on how things play out. What will be, will be. The Babylon Bee, a satirical website that often pokes fun at Christianity, recently highlighted some of the the error of this type of thinking, let go and let God. 
It was the story, it was the story of this mountain climber who came to a, a particularly difficult place when climbing up a rock formation, recalling the words of his pastor to let go and let God when facing difficult situations, the fictitious climber released his safety net and took his hands off the hand grips, of course, resulting in significant injuries. We can all see the ridiculousness of this, but can we see the ridiculousness of how this plays out in our everyday decisions? It doesn't matter if we have a plan for how we parent our kids. Let go and let God. What will be, will be. It doesn't matter if we have a plan for how we spend our finances. Let go and let God. He's got it taken care of. What will be, will be. Or it doesn't matter if we have a plan for how we engage our neighbors and our coworkers on mission. What will be, will be. God is in control. God has determined everything that is to occur, and so it doesn't really matter what I do. The decisions I make, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how we grow a family, it doesn't matter. Let go and let God. What will be, will be. Such thinking is very incomplete. Man very much plays a role in impacting the future. Proverbs 24.8 says this, Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. If I plan evil, if that's the decision I make, my plans or my decisions, they impact the future, and I will be called a schemer. So in answering the question, who controls the future, God or man, I cannot dismiss that I have a role in impacting the future. God and man control the future. Let go and let God is an incomplete theology. The other, the other functional misunderstanding in how we answer the question, who controls the future, God or man, is that God is in control unless I somehow mess it up. I believe God has some secret, perfect plan for my life, and I need to figure out what that secret, perfect plan is. And so as you look to the future, you're anxious in trying to figure out that secret, perfect plan. You fret. You're paralyzed. As you consider a non-moral life decision, like who should I work for? Company A, or Company B, or Company C? Or who should I marry? What should I do with my summer? You believe you need to find God's perfect plan in how you make that decision. Listen to Pastor Kevin DeYoung. Many of us fear we'll take the wrong job, or buy the wrong house, or declare the wrong major, or marry the wrong person, and suddenly our lives will blow up. We'll be out of God's will, doomed to spiritual, relational, and physical failure. Or to put it in Christianese, we'll find ourselves out of the center of God's will. We'll miss God's best and have to settle for an alternate plan for our lives. 
Because you worry about not being in the center of God's will and having to settle for an alternate plan, something that is not God's plan, you freeze when making plans. You fret. You worry. When you functionally believe you can mess up God's plans, you have way too high a view of how much you control the future. You can't thwart God's particular plan. You can certainly reject his moral purposes for for your life. You can choose to sin and suffer consequences as a result, but you do not need to be paralyzed that you need to discover his perfect plan. Proverbs 16 says this, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Chapter 16 affirms that there is a dynamic at play where man makes plans that impact the future, and ultimately, God is sovereign over all those plans. This creates freedom for those of us that fret and worry about figuring out God's particular plan. The answer to the question, who controls the future, God or man, it is not only God, it is not only man. The Bible affirms there is a relationship between the plans of man and the sovereignty of God in determining the future. It is not either or, but both and. I make choices that impact the future, and the Lord ultimately established my steps. He ultimately authored those choices and made those consequences happen. So in what areas of your life do you need to look to the future and make plans? Is it your pursuit of a career? Or maybe it's a, the pursuit of a different career. Maybe it's your desire to get married. Or you're, you're in a marriage and you want to have a better marriage. Maybe you need to make plans about how to get that marriage healthier. Maybe it's your desire to have deeper friendships. Maybe you need to to plan to think through how to parent your children or grow in parenting your children. Like the righteous bride, in what ways do you need to consider what you're saying yes to that results in you saying no to others? Are, Are you considering how saying yes to work commitments or yes to youth sports is leading you to say no to other things. And what about your own personal spiritual formation? Do do you look to the future and have a plan for growing and understanding the word of God and for learning to teach it to others? And what about the mission of making disciples? Are you growing in your ability to communicate the gospel to the particular barriers others have? Looking to the future developing a plan for the future, setting steps to accomplish that plan. The book of Proverbs is teaching us to do so. Looking to the future is the first characteristic of wise planning. The second is leave wicked plans. There are several verses in Proverbs that describe dishonest or evil plans. Proverbs 3.29 talks about planning evil against your neighbor. Proverbs 6.18 mentions a heart that devises wicked plans. 
Proverbs 16.30 references merchants who wink their eyes as they plan to deceive others and steal from them. Proverbs 12.20 contrasts those who devise evil with those who plan for peace. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. The wise person plans peace and has abandoned plans to devise evil. As a result, they have joy. They impact their future. But the unwise person plans deceit. He or she makes wicked plans. An example of this type of planning is found in the first book of the Bible about a group of 12 brothers. The the youngest brother named Joseph is kind of daddy's favorite. And as they age, the older brothers get more and more jealous. Now Joseph, he doesn't make the situation any better because one day he tells his brothers about a dream he had where they were all bowing down to him. He is certainly not thinking through how his decisions could impact the future. And so one day, his father sends him out to check on his older brothers. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see that a fierce animal has de- then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Those of you familiar with the book of Genesis know the brothers eventually decide killing Joseph is a little bit too harsh, so they decide to sell him into slavery instead. This is wicked planning at its finest conspiring, deciding to do harm, developing plans to deceive or hurt or wound others. The sexual abuser conspires to draw in his or her victims, working to conceal the abuse, planning to do it repeatedly. Wicked planning. The addict devises plans to embrace alcohol, or acquire prescription pain medication illegally, or to engage another drug of choice to escape their reality. Wicked planning. The adulterer determines how best to engage the adulteress. A subtle touch here, a little flirt there, deleting text messages, concealing communication, finding secret points to rendezvous, while keeping the relationship hidden. Wicked planning. The thief drawing up the plan to secretly snatch some money or possession from someone else for personal gain. Wicked planning. And the one who seeks revenge meditates on plans to hurt others. They think through how they can use their words or their actions to make someone else feel their pain. Wicked planning. I know this word wicked. Some of us bristle at it. It seems strong, like that word should be reserved for individuals like Hitler or serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, planning to engage that secret relationship, it might be wrong, but it's not wicked. When we come to that place, we've made peace with what is wicked. 
You plan evil, but you are unwilling to see it as wicked. In what ways do you need to leave wicked plans? What are you unwilling to tell others about, but you spend time thinking through how to make it happen? First City Church, we we are certainly not a perfect church. We are not a perfect people. But one of the things I am so thankful for, in fact, in awe of, is that there are so many people who've been willing to bring the wickedest of plans into the light. Plans to remain an addict. Plans to persistently use pornography. Plans to commit adultery. These individuals are willing to call the way they devise plans wicked. They are willing to reject those ways, to repent of them, and to seek something different. Might God be calling you to do the same? So as the wise person makes plans, they look to the future, and they leave behind wicked plans. The third characteristic of how the wise makes plans is they listen to advice. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs says, A plan that has many advisors, a plan that engages community, that plan will succeed. A plan that is developed isolated from community, much less likely to do so. The unwise makes plans apart from community. So there's a church called the Crowded House in the United Kingdom that I learn much from and very much lives out this idea of making plans and making decisions in community. Like First City Church, one of the things they value is living as family. And so they express that value like this. We are committed to caring for one another, discipling one another, investing in relationships, and resolving conflict. All sounds good. All sounds like things we would affirm might struggle with the resolving conflict piece. But in general, these are things we would agree and affirm with what they're saying. But they go on to say, we will expect one another to make decisions with regards to the implications for the church and to make significant decisions in consultation with the church. They expect the members of their church to not make decisions, significant decisions, isolated from community. They, they expect individuals to process in community how their decisions could not only impact themselves and their immediate family, but also how their decisions might impact their extended family, the church. In an individualized culture, which is very characteristic of Americans, this concept of bringing community into how we make decisions and how we, pl- how we plan, it's very countercultural and maybe even quite uncomfortable. We like to dismiss how our plans and the decisions we make impact others. We call them personal plans. So we reject that as we make decisions and plan for the future, we need the wisdom of others. Proverbs 12:15 says, "The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice." The unwise person is isolated. 
the unwise person doesn't believe he needs to understand the perspective of others. He believes he has all the answers. He thinks too much of himself to ask for advice. But the wise man, he wants to know what others think. He wants to know what they have to say. And so he listens to advice. Now, to better understand what listening to advice means, let's talk about what it isn't. Listening to advice is not seeking out sympathy or empathy when you're facing a difficult decision. Too much of the time, this is what we want community to do, and this is not a bad thing to want community to empathize or sympathize, but it's, it's primarily the only thing we want. We want community to make us feel better, not challenge us. We want community to empathize with our feelings of pain and toil. What we don't want for them is to start questioning us or challenging us with other things to consider. Listening to advice is not seeking out sympathy. Listening to advice is also not asking for permission. That is what a cult does. It makes people ask for permission to make certain decisions. That is not what Proverbs is getting at. Listening to advice means you want counsel, not permission. Listening to advice means you haven't made up your mind yet, and so you want to learn the perspective of others. Listening to advice is not asking permission. And listening to advice is also not asking God's blessing for a decision you will be making or have already made. You say to your gospel community something like, we really need prayer. We have to decide whether or not to take this job. We need you to pray for us. But ultimately, you don't want advice. You want others to pray for you so God will give his stamp of approval on whatever decision you make. Listening to advice is not asking for God's blessing. When Proverbs says to listen to advice, and I, I looked back at, at the, what the Hebrew words mean, it actually means to listen to advice or counsel. I'm open to what others have to say, and I want to know what they have to say. So who should we be asking advice of? Proverbs 13.30. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 20:18. Plans are established by wise counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. We need to be wise who we ask advice of. So, Isabella, my 10-year-old daughter, she loves to sing. And when Isabella was singing this last week, she was around my four-year-old daughter, Olivia, who told her she was singing with too low of a tone. So Isabella started using this really high pitch as, as she was singing. Later, I asked her, hey, why, why are you singing with such a, a high pitch? And she said, well, Olivia told me I was singing too low. I said, if you want advice, you probably shouldn't ask Olivia. Which, Olivia was right there, and she said, yeah. Four-year-olds really don't know what they're talking about. <clears throat> Some of you 
Some of us ask the wrong type of people for advice. You ask parents with disobedient younger children how to have a vision for parenting children that will grow up to be teens that want to serve and bless others. They don't know how to do that. You ask people about how to grow in spiritual formation who do not repent of specific sin. You ask people how to grow in reading their Bibles who are not engaged in the discipleship of others. This is the wrong way to ask for advice. You need to be careful who you're seeking counsel from. When you're less mature in the faith, and we are a room filled with young people who are growing and maturing, but we're young. When, you, when, we're, when we, you're less mature in the faith, and I must caveat that, that young in the faith does not necessarily correlate with age. Asking advice from peers is generally not a good idea. If the peer is wise, rather than providing counsel, they will defer to someone who is more mature in the faith. Have you asked so-and-so what they think? And maybe so-and-so is a pastor or a gospel community leader or a mentor or has expertise in a particular area. Or they might say, have you read this author to better understand how to process this through? I'll tell you, I've been so impressed with a few of the families in our church seeking out wise counsel when facing significant decisions. Should I pursue postgraduate education? How much should I spend on postgraduate education in this season of life? They ask questions like, should I get a vasectomy? We're getting ready to buy a house. How much should we spend? And when we buy that house, how much should we consider living close to community? I've gotten a job offer, but it's going to take me out of Bellevue. What do you think of that? This is perhaps the most difficult conversation for Chris and I as pastors. So many of you come here only temporarily because of the military. Yet there have been a few amazing conversations when the job offer comes. The family wants to know the perspective of their pastors, the people who will stand before God one day and give an account for how they kept watch over their souls. The couple doesn't want to be wise in their own eyes. They don't want to be short-sighted. They don't want to hurt the church. And so we process and pray together, sometimes providing counsel. We think it's time to stay, and they listen. And sometimes we provide counsel. God may be calling them to go, and they listen. So let's process a few types of plans. Are these the types of plans you would want to seek out counsel to listen to advice, or are these the type of plans you want to determine isolated from community, isolated from wise counsel? The opportunity to move. Is that a plan we should seek out counsel and community, or is that a decision to process isolated from community? How we spend our money. Maybe it's how much to spend on a house. I mean, spending money on a house, I'm certainly saying yes to one thing, and I'm saying no to lots of other things. What about how to parent? In particular, when our children struggle with obedience, 
Should I listen to advice from God the counsel, or can we figure that out on our own? Well, let's get, let's get a little more personal. What about decisions about birth control and family planning? Personal decisions, or should we bring those into community? What about, what about whether or not to commit my kids to activities, or for me to commit to attending night classes, or for me to get a new job, drawing away my family's ability to engage mission in the life of the church? Should I seek out counsel when making those plans? When making, when making plans, when making decisions, the wise person listens to advice. As we conclude, I want to say two things. First, some of you may not be great planners. And maybe, maybe there's a sin issue involved in that. But more than likely, this is simply an area we all need to grow in. Issues of wisdom are not necessarily sin issues. They're areas where we need to grow in maturing and understanding what it looks like to apply wisdom to particular scenarios. And so if you want to grow in how you apply wisdom, practice applying wisdom. Practice looking into the future as you make decisions and plans. Practice asking others for advice. I had at least three conversations this week with people asking for wisdom in particular situation. And I pray and hope that we have more, type, more of those types of conversations as a church. Second, the Bible is God's revealed plan of salvation for his people. It tells the story of how God created the world and everything in it, and how he created a world without sin. Yet man and woman, they rejected him. They rejected his promise, and they rejected, they experienced the consequences of that sin. Yet God promised a plan for their salvation. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's plan of salvation. At just the right time, Christ came, and he gathered a group of followers to teach them about who he is and what it means to believe in him. At just the right time, he died for the ungodly. He absorbed God's wrath, dying the death sinners should have experienced so they would not perish but have everlasting life. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Ultimately, people are living according to one of two plans. On the one hand, you have the arrogant, those who believe they are good in and of themselves, those who believe they do right and do not need a savior, those who are too prideful to accept that there is one who perished so that they might have everlasting life. This person living according to this plan will not go unpunished. And on the other hand, you have the one who walks in the fear of the Lord, 
They recognize they cannot save themselves. They cannot do good on their own. They need a Savior, and that Savior is God himself, Jesus Christ. They have placed their faith in his death for their sins. And that type of person living according to that plan will experience everlasting life. Our planning, it declares that we are Christ's that we want to live for his glory, that we want to grow in knowing and loving him, that we want to tell others about him, that we want to give our time and resources to him so that others may know him. May we be a people who makes those types of plans.